Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Thank you for joining me today. Today I have Mimi Heinemann. How are you today, Mimi? Thanks for joining. Good. Good to be here. Awesome. Before we begin, I'd like to have you, you know, give an introduction of yourself for our listeners so everyone knows who we have on the show today. Well, I'm Mimi, and um, I have been in multiple roles. I am the president of a nonprofit organization called the Home and Community Positive Behavior Support Network. And we'll talk a little bit about it later, but it provides um, resources to people who are supporting folks with difficult behavior in the community. And I have been teaching at Purdue Global University for three years. Um, teaching online ABA classes. And I also serve as a consultant. I work with organizations that um, support um, kids with behavioral challenges, typically autism, in home and community environments um, with a special focus on family engagement. Um, I'm also a writer. I've written some books and a bunch of articles. And so I just continue to do a lot of writing. Um, I've actually been a behavior analyst since 1988. I was one of the earliest um, certificants in Florida. Um, I think I was 57 or 58. Um, So I've been around a while um, and worked in residential programs with folks with severe problem behavior, moved from that into the school system. and was a behavior analyst. Um, Went from there to the University of South Florida where I worked with the Research and Training Center on Positive Behavior Support and also started Florida's first positive behavior support um, educational program. So did that um, in other roles, multiple roles teaching um, at USF as well um, until I had a baby And then I decided that um, I would stay home. I lasted about eight months before I lost my mind. Um, (laughs) And then, um, but during that time, did a lot of writing, wrote my first book. Um, And then after a year or two, started doing some work um, back with the university and ended up directing a project with Mark Durand um, on optimism training and behavioral parent training. And, after that, went back to consulting, um, worked for a year at an all-children's hospital, starting their autism and ABA programs there. Um, then I directed another research project on behavioral parent education, this time combining mindfulness into the intervention. Um, and then I just keep shifting back to teaching, consulting, writing, and the nonprofit stuff. So that's kind of my history. Yeah, in a nutshell, how do you how do you break down an entire life's work right there into a quick <laughs> bio and introduction? You did you did an impressive uh, job there. And I have so many questions. Um, one to just point out even a comment: all of the different locations and settings that you've worked in um, across you know schools. You said residentials. You've worked with different ages. It sounds like as well. I really appreciate that, and I'm excited to what kind of diversity that will bring to the to the to the talk and to the conversation. 
I know for many people who work in clinic-based only, they don't have uh, the experiences perhaps of a residential placement. Um, Residential placements have changed so much, hopefully continuing to change in the right direction over the years. And having been a behavior analyst since the 80s, my first question is, why are you still here? What what keeps you still craving the the knowledge? I I really am curious about that. Um, I think to me, behavior analysis provides a framework for understanding and problem solving and creativity. And there's a never ending opportunity to apply what we learn. So being able to work across, like you said, settings, populations, et cetera, um, each time is a new challenge. And to me, the thing that is most exciting is when you see people empowered, when you see kids who are, I've got kids I worked with when they were little who are in college now, um, families who can problem solve on their own, and professionals who take off and do amazing things with their career. So that to me is the is the the reason you stick with this. Certainly not the money. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the money. <laughs> no, not the hours. <laughs> nope. It's definitely something else that keeps us inspired and connected. And I really appreciate you sharing what that is or why that is for you. And and I think it was beautifully articulated. So I'll probably be quoting you in the future and saying, you know, Mimi says to me. <laughs> um, It was the understanding and creativity, problem solving and empowerment was really what I took away from what you said. And those are very strong and encouraging uh, words. And they leave with us a really big challenge, right? To tackle as providers. So you and I first connected just a couple of weeks ago, I think you reached out to me and said, hey, uh, let's talk, let's connect, let's see. We're both doing things like, are they the same thing? And can we um, collaborate in any way. And I really, really enjoyed our first conversation and almost wish we had that one recorded to share. So I'm, in, I'm excited that you were um, able to come and be on, on the podcast today. One of the things that we had uh, really started talking about was positive behavior supports. And, and you mentioned that in your introduction as well. And so for our listeners, I, I, some who know, some who may think they know, and some who have never heard that phrase before, Can you give a description of what positive behavior support is for you? Yeah, positive behavior support actually developed in the 1990s. And it came out of an argument that was silly, um, whether we were humanists or behaviorists. And so out of that discussion, there was a lot of concern by family members that behavior interventions were not always respectful or... um, or they could even be painful for people. And so there was a frustration in the 1980s of saying, there's gotta be a better way. Can't we both be kind to people and manage behavior? And of course we can. So um, so the Office of Special Education Programs funded three five-year grants to do research into um, what they called non-aversive behavioral interventions. And really what it turned into is an emphasis on antecedent-based interventions. So that team looked at, you know, how do we get out in front of problem behavior instead of just how we react to it? And it was also about how to create environments that support positive behavior 
or how do we implement interventions within the natural flow of routines instead of being dependent on technicians or experts in order to manage behavior. So that's what the charge was, and I was part of that research and training center. So we started as community reference behavior management. We then became non-aversive behavioral support and eventually positive behavior support. But really what positive behavior support was about is designing ways to support people with behavioral challenges um, that could be used by typical caregivers within natural routines. And so, Yes, you would need support from people with expertise in behavior analysis, but we need the families, the staff, the caregivers to be the ones using that intervention. Now, PBS has changed its, um, I don't know how people perceive it over the years because of school-wide positive behavior support. Or, and it's not even positive behavior support, it's positive behavior interventions and supports. And so what we learned is that we could design really good plans for individuals, but then they'd sit in the file somewhere. They weren't implemented consistently. And so in my early work with the schools, we started reconceptualizing positive behavior support as a multi-tiered approach. That we needed system level support. And if we had good supports at that system level, fewer people needed more intensive support. And so we started working with schools to develop consistent expectations, reward systems, et cetera. Unfortunately, I feel like PBIS has, has been redefined as PBS and it's really not the entirety of it um, because oftentimes people think of school-wide interventions that are for everybody. And unless it's truly individualized, it's not positive behavior support even at a systems level, it should be truly individualized. So that's, and, and positive behavior support has five primary characteristics. Um, number one is it's focused on lifestyle change, not just discrete behavior change. Number two, it's a collaborative approach. So you engage everybody who's gonna support the person or the system. Number three is that we assess both functions and contexts. So trying to understand the ecology of behavior, not just what's maintaining it. Number four is that we um, have multi-component interventions. We recognize that once we figure out what the patterns are, that you can't just do one intervention and expect a quick fix, that it has to be proactive, educative, and functional, and has to support the people who are gonna support the person with the behavior issues. And then finally, um, database decision making. But in positive behavior support, we're expecting typical caregivers to be the one collecting the majority of the data, which means we have to adapt that to make it reasonable. So um, that's my spiel <laughs> about PBS. <laughs> You know, I've been practicing in the field of behavior analysis for 20 years, and I have, I think, lots of different um, uh, conceptions about what positive behavior supports is or isn't. And it's very nice to hear from uh, a direct source um, and someone who certainly has been practicing for a while about your experiences. And I, I like how you said sort of the charge. This is what was behind it. Here's the reasons why it came to be. Um, I think that that context is missing for so many 
uh, in the field, especially those who have been not in the field for 20 years. And so, you know, part of what I'm so grateful for is that we get to share this information to anyone who's interested in learning about it. And it's our chance to elaborate and to, I think, ignite curiosity would be a goal of mine for this conversation for our listeners as well. Um, I was mentioning to you off air that my mom is currently a first grade teacher. She's teaching in Las Vegas, um, has been mostly virtual for this year. Um, but in the past, you know, um, she was, of course, on campus. And I was telling her in preparation for this conversation, I was like, yes, I'm going to have this person on. And we're talking about PDS, positive behavior supports. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's what we do at our school. We have those little like tickets and we hand them out. And I was like, no. I was like, it's kind of, okay, you're, you're in the right ballpark, like, but let's really tease that out. And um, I think that you're right that as far as like the applications, and we see this a lot. We see this in systems where the, the level of support needed is not, not either available or it's not stable. And so over time we get what I imagine is procedural drift and completely different uh, ideas of how something should be implemented. And then that kind of creates the new narrative for people of, oh, this is what that is. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's not, <laughs> it's definitely not what that is. Yeah, and the frustrating thing for me is that people take away the procedures, not the principles. And it's probably because we don't teach the principles well enough. And if we want something to be sustainable, we need to teach teachers to be those creative problem solvers. And if they can see okay, this, this behavior looks like it might be maintained by. So therefore, I'm not going to either take the assignment away or, or withdraw my attention or whatever. If we can teach teachers to be thoughtful about those things, we eliminate a lot of issues. But if we just say, here's a behavior plan or here's a, a token system, and we don't teach them the theory behind it, it's never going to be implemented with any fidelity. And it so really that's the frustration that I have is that a lot of what we do turns into these cookbook interventions instead of truly applying our powerful science. Yes, I, I've definitely experienced some of that, of course, in my career. But again, the way that you've articulated, we've taught the procedures and not the principles or if we teach the principles, it's not just the procedures that people will adopt, but hopefully we'll understand some of that, of course, rationale and reasoning behind it. You also said something that sounds so very behavior analytic. You said, and it's probably because we didn't teach them. The responsibility, right, falls on us um, oftentimes as the um, arrangers of the environment. And if we didn't get the outcomes we were looking for, perhaps we did not, we did not set the stage quite correctly for it to occur. Um, that responsibility and ownership for a lot of people, I think, is a, a heavy weight to carry. Um, but I also see it as it's it's possible for us to create solutions. And so, you know, if you have a problem, you have an opportunity for a solution. You know, I'm wondering as you're talking and you're especially talking about schools, one of the things that I've seen is something like uh, a first then board, right? So there's the example of maybe understanding a procedure but I'll have someone say, you know, first um, go to the bathroom, then we're going to do your least favorite subject, math. And they're like, so first bathroom, then math. And they definitely have the language correct. Yes, that is a good way to structure it. But it's supposed to be something that's really highly likely desired and preferable as that second piece of things. And I, I see when, when it's being implemented without that understanding 
And then people say, it's not working. I'm like, well, right. You just told them like, the thing you hate is coming up and then you got a challenging behavior. Like, again, it's, I think, just an example of what, what you're sharing and what you're saying. You know, we want to communicate this information, but we also don't want to sound like jargony scientists. How do you find the best way or what are some of the tips you might have, especially for our newer analysts, I would suggest um, in, in using the science, but disseminating it or delivering it in a way that people can understand. I'm sure you have had a lot of experience with that. You know, I think that we need to let go of our expert model in behavior analysis. And if we have this attitude that I have been trained to, you know, do this, we're going to put people off. And yes, we're trained in behavioral principles, but that doesn't mean we know the child, we know the situation, we know the environment in which we're working. So I think it's approaching situations as if we have a shared expertise and that everybody on the team is equally valuable in terms of their perspectives. So that's one thing. Number two is get rid of the jargon. If it's not necessary to teach um, people the basic understanding, you know, with the first then, first you have to do stuff you don't like, then you get to do stuff you do like. Well, that's gonna appeal to a family um, more than I'm gonna teach you the term pre-MAC principle and then we're gonna talk about differential reinforcement. I think there is this attitude like, parents and practitioners need to know the same lingo as us. No, they just need to know the same concepts. So a lot of my work has been translating research into practice and trying to find a language that's accessible and just not copying those attitudes about people. You know, I've done a lot of writing for Parenting Special Needs Magazine, um, well over 30 articles for them, and all are practical, you know, things that families can pick up. And I guess that's just a frustration is that we hold on to, and we withhold knowledge from people, I think, too. We say it's mine and that's not healthy. We got to give away as much as we possibly can. Yeah, it's not healthy. It's not efficient. It's not effective and it's not sustainable in the long run. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I echo a lot of um, what you've shared your sentiments there for sure. And I think that that's one thing that we have in common based off my limited knowledge of you, (laughs) just having met you. But I think when you reached out, you said, hey, we're doing things. You're doing things. I'm doing things. And we're making them accessible. We're we're putting them out there, which also leaves room for interpretation. And so, you know, I don't want everyone to just take something off my website and not delve deeper. Please do 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 more than just um, read my blog post or something like that. But holding on to information, it feels... um, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel right. Right. And I don't think that people. It's fascist. <laughs> thank you. I was like, what's the word I'm like? Um, and I don't, I don't in any way think that anyone's intentionally designing their interactions to do that. But when you, when you really sit down and think about it, not finding the most efficient, effective way to give this information to everybody and everyone who needs it, it's not helpful, you know? Um, you also mentioned talking about some of the, the reasons or the initiative behind positive behavior supports, and you had talked about, you know, we can do better, right? We want to be humane in our interactions. And as a behavior analyst, I have been given a lot of really great models of how to do that. Um, I've had really exceptional mentors, but looking and reading the literature in particular for those of 
those of us who weren't practicing um, at certain times, it's interesting and it's, it's informative. And I think it also um, supports some of what you're saying there, right? We look at different procedures where um, if a child is upset, we're going to withhold attention, right? If it's for attention, when really they, they maybe, maybe they just need a hug and then we can kind of figure out what's going on. Other times leaning into a situation where you might receive a uh, uh, aggressions, it's not the time to provide a hug. And so it is that sort of blending of the science with the situation, but not losing the connection to the human context. Can you talk more about some of the antecedent? You had talked about really being heavy based in antecedent strategies. I'm not sure all of our listeners know what that means. And I'm wondering if you could provide some examples for them. Yeah, um, our research involved, um, we actually did studies related to predictability which was associated with activity schedules and the impact of an activity schedule on behavioral reduction or engagement um, we did curricular redesign we did the choice and preference research so a lot of those antecedent interventions are were supported you know we always knew that if you give a child a choice between two things it increases the likelihood that they're going to cooperate and it decreases problem behavior well we had to prove that in a laboratory setting um, another area of study was rapport building which we equate with pairing and that when you develop a relationship with a child they're more likely to work with you duh <laughs> um, but it's it's really important but more so it's it's I think that our initial functional assessments and functional analyses only looked at the at the result of the behavior we said it was attention we said it was escape we said it was um, automatic so or tangible but that's insufficient to truly understand behavior we have to really identify exactly how that function is playing out. So what does it look like? Is it someone, is it a particular person's attention? Is it a particular type of attention? Are they, are they um, simply delaying a task or are they avoiding it altogether? So really the assessments looking at the depth of function, but then looking at the context and say, what specifically are the triggers for this behavior? So mom picks up the phone to have a conversation with someone else or answers the door. If we, the more specific we can be about those antecedents, the more tailored the intervention approach. So prior to mom picking up the phone or answering the door, she's saying, this is gonna take me about five minutes. Here, here's some of your favorite toys to play with while I'm having a conversation with someone else. That's a tailored proactive antecedent-based intervention. And you mentioned a setting event, if a child gets very little attention throughout the day, they're going to be more attention needy and they're probably gonna to resort to higher levels of behavior in order to access that attention. So the setting event strategy is quality time with the parent, but also figuring out are there other sources of attention so you're not overwhelming mom. And unfortunately, I think that we tend to focus so narrowly on the child who is the focus of intervention and we forget the needs of the other people surrounding them. So that's a more ecological um, proactive approach to intervention. And the better our assessment, the more tailored our interventions are. You're saying so many amazing quotes and gems in this conversation. I'm, I'm excited to also replay it and listen back to it myself. 
one of my favorite parts of the podcast. I get to engage in the conversation, get to ask all the questions I want to ask. And then later on, I played a listener role um, fully where I hear us both back and forth. You know, I do have what I, I call my cheat sheet, function-based cheat sheet. And it's a one-page summary of, um, based on the, the four primary patterns surrounding behavior, what would be um, antecedent-based interventions that would make sense? What are replacement behaviors that should be taught? And how would you manage access to that reinforcer? I use it with families and practitioners because it's all in um, user-friendly language. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Any resources. You've really talked about, well, well, one comment I want to make is you talked about some antecedent-based strategies, and I appreciate you providing an example that was so easy for people to conceptualize and to see that parent. who We, we have all been on some, some side of that, that interaction there when you're on the phone or someone needs our attention. But I love what you said because it's like, well, we know these things work. We're seeing them work. But we also have to then, of course, document that and then share that and disseminate that research as well. So research is it incredibly important part of the conversation as are your permanent product writings. And in the conversations that we've had, you've mentioned and have gone back to multiple times, the benefit and the need for leaning into the family unit or into other stakeholders and caregivers. So talk to me about that because that's an area of passion of mine. We wanna empower, as you mentioned, uh, families. We wanna get away from the expert, I'm the only person who can help you kind of idea. That's, that's not the case. So can you share with us more about that interest and passion of yours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess from the time that I was in the field, I always thought, why are we just writing about families and why aren't we writing two or four families? They're the number one consumer of this knowledge. Why don't we make stuff accessible? So that's what prompted you know, writing my first book that's what prompted me getting involved with um, Parenting Special Needs Magazine, is to be able to to create stuff um, that's like a workbook or that um, guides people through the process. So that's that's one thing. Another thing that has struck me is how often I hear the blame game with parents, Um, including with my students. It seems they get inculcated into this viewpoint of, of families are the, our enemy or our, the, what's coming in between us and the success of this child. And I think that's really unfortunate because it's, it's, an, it's easy to say it's the parent's fault. They're not implementing this the way they're supposed to, it's their fault. But the bigger challenge is to say, why? What is it about this intervention? What is it about the results of this intervention for the family that's not maintaining their behavior? And so if we extend our functional assessment to the caregiver and we say, what are the antecedents to caregiver behavior? What are the functions of caregiver behavior? Well, this caregiver is giving in because it's easier. If I just give my kid what they want or let them out of something they don't want, they're going to stop this behavior and they're going to stop it fast. And that's a relief to me. So we need to be able to give families you know, antecedent supports that allow them to be more successful. We need to teach them the skills and then we need to help them ride out times that are gonna be challenging by providing a lot of reinforcement instead of criticism. Uh, um, I think they could use a lot more uh, support, compassion and kindness, especially uh, in our interactions and interventions. I, I, 
I'm thinking of a family I worked with once and we were working on a meal eating program. And I had said, you know, he'll take a bite or two and then, then he can have access again to pre-mac principle and play here. And the, the mom was like, yes, absolutely. No problem, Dr. Manning, got it, got it, got it. And I thought, gosh, I'm real effective. Look at how easily she just said yes, right? Like, okay, cool, she's on board. And when I circled back to the family a few days later, um, it, that wasn't what they were doing. And I said, hey, what, what, what about what we talked about? And with some uh, patience and sort of creating the space for the family to feel comfortable to share, the mom had shared, you know, she's originally from a third world country and we don't make food and take two bites and throw it away, or we don't make food and put it in the fridge. Also, we don't tell somebody with a doctorate in her country, no. So she felt conflicted and just said yes. Mm -hmm. And one of my messages to anyone who will listen to that story is if you get a yes real easily, um, check your yes, right? Because it's, it's not the situation. And the other thing is you can't go back to a family 30 days later and say, hey, how's that thing I asked you to do? Or what's that thing that, you know, how's it going with what we talked about? 30 days later is too much, right? If I went to my physical therapist and he said, hey, go home and do these exercises three times a week. And then he asked me a month later, had I done them? I'd be like, yeah, last night I did them right before you were going to have the meeting with me. But we don't have that like ongoing necessarily um, schedule of, of, of feedback and reinforcement. So families definitely need that support. Um, and something that I want to share with you and speaking with a, a friend of mine, Dan Unum, we were talking one day about how if only as a field we could really work to teach therapists to understand the perspective of parents instead of trying to train parents to act as therapists, mm -hmm. right? So, And a lot of the interventions we design are just not doable in the natural routines. Um, you know, we're asking parents to do things that's outside their role as parents instead of... I, and if you can't come up with an, an intervention that can be done while mom's preparing dinner and taking care of two other kids, then you need to go back to school <laughs> because you do. You, be, you need to be able to, to think about what we call in positive behavior support contextual fit. And if the plan doesn't have contextual fit, it's not doable. It's the family doesn't have buy-in, then it's not going to happen. And so you got to think about, well, let's go back to the principles of applied behavior analysis. How can we use these principles in a creative way that, that actually fits in the family routine? Perfect. Absolutely. Beautifully and simply stated. You had also mentioned that some of the work you're doing with or research on parent training was including or embedding uh, mindfulness. I'm, I'm dying to hear more about that. Well, actually, there were two lengthy studies. Um, one is with, with Durand, and we um, combined behavioral parent training with optimism training. And we actually deliberately selected families who were discouraged, who used language like, it's never going to get any better. Um, I can't do anything about this. My child runs the show, kind of that kind of thing. And so... Um, we had two groups, one that did behavioral parent training only, and the other group learned how to reevaluate the way that they were thinking um, associated with their support for their child. So that one was pretty interesting um, it, because parents really started thinking, okay, I'm actually saying this to myself, 
And because I'm saying this to myself, I'm giving in or giving up. And so it gives them a way to catch them, to catch them and replace that, that thinking. The second study um, I'm, I was really excited about because the optimism training can be deflating for families because they feel like they're doing something wrong if they're critiquing their, their speaking. And the mindfulness is instead um, more about accepting um, and letting go and being attentional and intentional. So it's the ability of a parent, if you've ever worked with a parent who is so stressed out that they miss what happened with their child completely, um, that's a parent who's lost their attention or a parent who doesn't seem to have a plan. That's a parent who's struggling with intention. So what mindfulness does is it, it teaches families to focus in, to see what's really going on without judgment, and then to follow through with what their heart's telling them in terms of what's gonna make the biggest difference for my child. So we, in that study, we also had two groups and one group um, learned mindfulness practice. And actually that's something else I can share with you. Um, as part of that study, we developed a free app for families called Practiced Mind. And it's actually specifically designed for families of kids with behavioral challenges. I, again, I'm, I'm just excited, so excited for all these resources <laughs> and to be able to share them with the listeners, which um, from the feedback I receive is quite a lot of parents. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation and providing them with some some supports, uh, even just through this this discussion. I know that you've done several publications, writings. You have also um, tools and resources. I want to give you an opportunity to share some of these additional tools, resources, information to help tell our families and listeners where they can find access to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we um, the nonprofit organization. We have a website. Um, that has, it's basically become our depository of all great materials we find. So we're continually doing um, lit searches, web searches, to try to um, beef this up. So this is the website, it's called the Home and Community Network. Um, the first page, of course, is just gonna tell you about our network and what we do, free to join. Everything we do is free um, for practitioners, for families, for everybody. Um, it tells you a little bit about us as a team, who, the people who are involved. Most are behavior analysts. More than half of our leadership are both parents and professionals, which we're really proud of. It's got some information on, on positive behavior support. We've got videos. We've got recordings. We've got access to a tutorial that takes you through three case studies. We've got some cute cartonized um presentations, and we've got um, kind of self-assessments to see if you're using the principles of PBS. And under resources and literature, we have parallel topics. So the literature, of course, is peer-reviewed articles, um, edited books, that kind of thing. So if you're a researcher, you go there. If you're a practitioner, you hit the, the resources page. Um, so as an example, the families section of the website has all of the articles I've ever written for Parenting Special Needs Magazine organized into topic areas. It has access to free videos for parent training. 
um, and um, a special issue from Parenting Special Needs that takes families through the entire process. So lots of stuff. So that's kind of an example of what we're fleshing out um, for every single section of the website. And what's kind of cool is that each of these categories under both resources and literature, we have a content expert, someone with very um, high level knowledge in that area of work. In addition, on our website, you'll find all of the webinars we've done in the past 10 years recorded and the materials available. Those are also free. We host family chats. We try to do that at least three times a year. And that's a less formal kind of thing. And then, of course, um, what's neat about this network is we've developed partnerships where we combine resources with other large organizations um, in order to do creative. And like the Family Chats is a collaborative partnership with Parenting Special Needs Magazine and Parent to Parent National. So just if you guys get a chance to go to hcpbs.org, you'll see all of these resources. That's fantastic. And it's so very organized and structured. I'm happy to be a part of uh, getting it out there, making sure families, providers, caregivers, everybody, every stakeholder is aware of it as a resource. Um, I'm so grateful to you for reaching out. I'm, my life has been enhanced from these interactions and from these conversations. I've also been spending some time perusing the website more and delving in deeper. And um, I definitely encourage the listeners to do the same. Really appreciate our conversation today. And before we end our, our call, um, I just, again, want to say thank you and give you an opportunity for any final parting words or shout outs, summaries, anything that you want to say, this is your time. I think it's, it's the folks who are listening in on this. You're, I think a lot of people are on the front lines um, doing the hard work that comes with applied behavior analysis and, and that I value um, what folks are doing. Families struggle, um, especially now in this COVID issue, everybody's had to upend their approach in order to continue to support people. And I think that's amazing. So you should pat yourselves on the back for that. How kind of you to say, and so true. So very true. Mimi, thank you so much for joining me today here and enlightening our listeners, um, sharing more information, hopefully igniting that curiosity, and then also providing a place for uh, anyone who wants to learn more to go in and to really delve deeper into those those topics. Um, you've been a wealth of knowledge and a, and a joy to speak to. So I just want to thank you again. Thank you, Amanda. Have a good rest of your day. Absolutely. So for anyone who's interested, again, that website of Mimi's is, uh, or that she referenced was hcpbs.org. And for any of the information that she's going to send my way, you can find that at www.behaviorbabe.com. <laughs>